Welcome back to SideQuest episode 32, Final Fantasy VII, episode 20, and wow, do we have a big one for you today. Um, welcome back, Ms. Wesley Chance. Thanks. Yeah, there's suddenly a ton to talk about here. I know. It's so funny that uh, we, we had thought we were just climbing up a mountain and having to shiver to stay warm, and we continued to think psychologically about sort of the, the feeling of trauma or of like the, the, the sort of uh, cold nature of betrayal, both represented here by the actions of Sephiroth slash herself and also uh, sort of Dante's Lucifer in the bottom levels of hell. And then all of a sudden, things just get out of control. Yeah, well, there's a several boss fights there, and usually we sort of stop playing after about an hour. And so between all the random battles and the boss fight, you know, we, and then, you know, exceeded that. And then just to start the, um, the cutscene that then follows and, and a lot of kind of dialogue and stuff that's not exactly cutscenes, but isn't exactly gameplay either. It's sort of like text dump, uh, story dump, you know, just like, here's a lot of stuff you might have been wondering about, and it's all being revealed at once here. Um, so, I don't know, should we kind of rewind a little bit to to lead up to that? There's, I mean, there's at least a few things we could say about the, the ice caves um, and how the, uh, the clones start appearing there. Um, but... I mean, mainly we need to get into that, that cutscene material that follows the Genova fight, I suppose. Yeah, I mean, I guess a couple things about the ice caves are that um, you, can, you can gain a new enemy skill, which I almost gained, but then ran away from the battle of, so did not gain, and that's Bad Breath by Marlboro, uh, which is a hard word to say, Marlboro, like the cigarette company, who has <laughs> Bad Breath, which is pretty funny. He's a perennial character in the Final Fantasies that I've played as well. Prominent in Final Fantasy VIII as well. Pretty nasty character there. Um, let's see what else happens in, in, in the ice caves. You, you fight uh, a nasty little boss who um, and, and some high-level enemies too, right? Like there are dragons again from whom you can get dragon armlets. I fought against one of those and you have a nasty little two-headed boss. And so uh, yeah, I, I am a little bit excited to get into the summoning of Weapon and the identity of Cloud and his mental breakdown, the failed experiment nature of him, the finding of Sephiroth and him being asleep and what that means, summoning of Meteor, and uh, the execution in Junon. But what do you make of this ice scene? Well, yeah, I mean, there's a, there's a couple more little cues that something was rushed in the game's translation that we should just pop in there in, in that sort of side discussion. There's like a mega elixir you can get. I think yes. that's called last elixir. Uh, if you go past a bunch of of uh, icicles and knock them all down, um, you need to do that anyway to be able to cross to the next section. So uh, you find also like a there's a yellow looking materia that's actually a support materia, so blue in the menu screen. So something a little wonky there, um, which it's sort of traditional to get a new materia after fighting a Genova. So that's kind of cool. Um, I also thought there's something kind of interesting going on with the, the whole idea of materia and summoning um, and magic here that's maybe a little different. Like there's something going on with the camera panning 
in a few scenes. Um, one big one is when you finally get to the top of the cliff. It turns out that you've been climbing the edge of the crater of the of the previous meteor strike, right? So um, the camera pans up and you see over it, uh, you see the uh, northern lights above you and you see this kind of whirlwind thing going on down in the middle of the crater. Um, and then when you go in there, it's like someone's playing with the camera. Like it, it sort of teases you. It's like it's looking ahead and then it'll snap back to where you're at. It looks ahead and then it snaps back to you. And I don't know whether that's supposed to be like you're, you're sort of seeing Cloud's attention being drawn ahead or whether it's doing something like more nefarious to you as the player. Like you've just gone through this long ice cavern. Nothing story-wise has happened for a long time in the game and you're like looking ahead, looking ahead, right? And the camera's like doing that too. That's what I thought anyway. Uh, and then it's revealed, right, that the whole time you thought you were on your adventure pursuing Sephiroth, actually he was summoning you, Genova was summoning you to this, uh, to this reunion. Yeah, and well, I think you're doing a fantastic job so far, so could you maybe tell us a little bit more about that and what's happening here? Uh, sort of the nature of Cloud that we learned from Hojo, and for, which we learned from these um, sort of um, illusions as they are described uh, that we have ourselves projected into, but our actual reality, um, as I think perhaps shown by Tifa's memory, and we learned something that the cloud is a, a an admixture of Genova cells and Mako that can uh, form itself uh, into a character form uh, or based on the memories of the person that he is around. And so that would explain how why Tifa thought he was like a person named Cloud whom she knew and also why Ares thought that he was like a guy named Zach but that there were problems with both yeah yeah, yeah definitely uh, the idea that this whole time he is one of those clones um, has been kind of growing on us for a while it's confirmed here um, pretty directly that he is what they call a failed experiment. So he wasn't even given a tattooed number, right? Um, we saw the first one of those way back in one of the slums. There's a guy with a tattoo on his arm and he's uh, got Mako sickness. Uh, but then much more so once we start seeing all the different clones, uh, those uh, shadowy black cloak figures um, that start appearing around Shinra Mansion in Nibelheim when we get there. And so Cloud, it seems, has been, um, was, was headed for a, a fate like them. We see them all sort of falling off the cliffs and getting whomped by Sephiroth. He, like, knocks them out um, with one blow. Cloud was about to do that, it looked like. But then, yeah, Tifa shows up, and um, he sort of imprints on her, is what it looks like in the memory that she shares there um, outside of the train station, uh, the train stop in the slum under Midgar. And so he um, sort of gets a new lease on life at that point and has all these memories sort of taken from her. On the other hand, he gets some things mixed up, right? Like the time that he supposedly has been gone, some of the events of his life. And the break finally seems to come within that illusion. Um, he's all set to say that it's just Sephiroth um, 
messing with him. He's not affected by it. He says this many times. But then suddenly he realizes that he doesn't remember actually going and joining Soldier, right? He only remembers all of the parts that have to do with um, Tifa, Nibelheim, Sephiroth, right? All of that stuff. But nothing that would be like his own story, right? Stuff that's not connected with those other characters. He can't remember actually joining Soldier, becoming first class. Um, and that's when he, he suddenly kind of has the break. Um, the, the scene is kind of replayed from a different perspective um, within the burning town. And you get also the, um, the photograph, right, that was taken, which is pretty creepy. Uh, it looks like Sephiroth like, takes it from the dead body of the kid who, who took the picture um, and, and shows it to you. And that's sort of, it seems to be, again, one of those triggers that finally Cloud starts to unravel um, this, this long buried memory or, or lack of memory. Uh, again, it's, it's a little bit muddled because we're, it, we're within a, um, a virtual kind of memory, right? And so in some sense, Sephiroth is creating it. Uh, but on the other hand, it's confirmed by Tifa and by Hojo a little later. So I feel like you can kind of triangulate enough to say that it's, it's valid there. And just to mention sort of a, a theme there and um, attention is that what seems to be sort of the purpose of Sephiroth revealing this to Cloud is to show that Sephiroth is he who is real, the real hero who was there, who was slaying dragons, who found out who was soldier first class, whereas uh, Cloud is nothing. He's not real. He's a puppet. He doesn't have emotions. Whereas there's a tension because it is currently Sephiroth who appears not to have a body or a living body. We've seen him moving around I'm not sure what the nature of those bodies were, but he can seem to discard them or inhabit the bodies of the, the cloud figures, which would make sense why cloud just gives him the black materia twice now. Um, but that, um, but Sephiroth does, uh, he cannot move of his own volition. It doesn't look like uh, in that crystalline Mako, we find him in which Rufus interestingly calls the promised land, but Hojo still refuses to mention is the promised land, which Rufus then says is, the reason why Hojo's a second-rate scientist, which is funny because apparently so Hojo hasn't told us everything he knows, and maybe he's he's a little bit better than everybody thinks. But um, Sephiroth currently is the one who is not real in that he does not seem to be alive in the traditional sense of the word, and even Hojo defines him as dead. And uh, Cloud, regardless of what his true identity is, certainly is a real being at this moment. Yeah, I I think the identity between Sephiroth and Genova is pretty strongly implied here. Like Sephiroth is um, about to attack you and then you get into a boss battle fight with Genova once again. Um, so it's like also making me think of that discussion we had about Genova having a masculine form in the memory of the ancients. Um, that in some sense, Sephiroth, uh, and and I guess Cloud too, since they're sort of both formed from the cells. Um, he basically is Genova for all intents and purposes, uh, a manifestation of of that that being. Um, the historical Sephiroth, right, is like frozen in ice there, um, but various kinds of projections of him seem to be very active um, in in bringing the physical 
lump of Genova back there to to reunite um, and to summon Meteor uh, again, basically, right? Like to kind of replay that um, that attempt uh, that was made back in the ancient story that we got in Dr. Gast's house. Um, and, and what do you make of the relationship between Genova and Sephiroth? Because I feel like in the old days, this a lot hinged on this. But I even took a picture of this from the gameplay that, uh, and I think this is Hojo's analysis, that Sephiroth's will is not content to return to the life stream and that he is now... Um, he, is, he, he wishes to manipulate directly the wills of his, his clones uh, or, or his puppets, like Cloud, apparently is a failed version of, and um, that he is in this spot precisely so that he can have access to the sort of place of power or materia necessary in order to to summon a very powerful spell like Meteor and that, and, and so what is the, and Genova is also coming there bringing, and, ah, yes. So is he summoning his clones by using Genova's power to reunify in order to empower his spell casting ability to, cast meteor i i just i'm trying to put that together something like that seems to be the idea it's it's interesting to me like the whole idea of um summoning and magic and how that's tied up with mako as as a crystal form as materia um but then whatever it is that you're doing like has a physical effect right like when you use materia to cast magic it does something like something appears uh whether it be a, a spell or a summon or an added effect or whatever right um so this whole idea that sephiroth um and Genova are in some sense distinct right in hojo's explanation there of sephiroth's will um it does seem interesting it seems almost like following um the way that Cloud has got no number on him and he's like craving an identity. Something about these clones of uh, Genova of Sephiroth seem to be um, like craving some kind of individuality. Um, that idea that like their desire to become their own person um, is part of what drives them. It seems like that goes really deep into, for me, the, the whole um, concept of this as a Final Fantasy game. Because, like, you know, each of the games has kind of got its tattoo. It's like a clone of the others, right? And yet it wants to create the illusion, right, while you're in it, that it's, it's the, the ultimate game, right? It's the best game that there's ever been and that you should you know, com completely devote your time and efforts to, to playing it or something like that. Um, so that's kind of what I see going on there. It's like Sephiroth is summoning you the way that you use other summon spells in battle. Um, he's he's uh, distinguishing himself from this chain of, of Genova, like destructions, the way that each Final Fantasy game uh, distinguishes itself 
from the series of, of Final Fantasy of which it's a part. Um, in terms of like what exactly is going on here, uh, where exactly the distinction is, I'm not super sure, um, but it's really interesting for me at least to speculate about some of that kind of stuff. Um, and just like the, the other stuff with the camera panning and you know the sort of meta aspect of this, um, you know, thinking about your relationship to Cloud at this point as he sort of leaves the party, right? And you start controlling Tifa and then Barrett instead. Uh, it's all it's all pretty interesting to me. Yeah, what do you think about them? What do you take about the fact that the main character, the seat of the logos, the sort of uh, most archetypal embodiment of the hero is the one that suffers complete psychic collapse here and uh, loses his identity completely. And A, why does he need this identity? Why is it so important? Seems a narrative structure to one's life is for some, is, is a deep necessity at the very least uh, here. But um, what, I mean, what do you take of the fact that he unravels in this way? And does, does that mean that what we are hearing is correct from Sephiroth? and Hojo, because at, at the very beginning of this illusion, I mean, it seems like we're pretty on cloud side of things, saying Sephiroth is a trickster, you know, he's like a devil or a Voldemort figure. And um, it's very interesting that you say that we are like a summon for him. He is summoning, summoning us to him. It is as if uh, the devil does his work or evil does its work through the embodiment of humans who feel constrained in their choices. Um, who then do evil things thinking that they have no will in the matter or something like that. That would work very well with our most recent uh, uh, Harry Potters with the, uh, what is it? Not the Cruciatus, but the Confundus charm, right? Some, or one of the deadly curses that, that mm. restrains one's will, that, changes, that makes one um, subject to another's will, just as we see here, um, Cloud with Sephiroth. And so, uh, to what, why is it that him being subject to another's will and being a failed representation of that figure uh, makes him unravel? And, and is he admitting through unraveling that what he's hearing is correct? And yeah. it's, it, is he thus unraveling in the same way that Sephiroth unraveled when he lost his identity? Right. Yeah, I was thinking about that earlier scene as well. It seems like Sephiroth went through that process, um, regrouped uh, pretty, pretty well, um, kind of coherently um, got his relationship with Genova straight and uh, began in turn manipulating others. Uh, that seemed to be sort of like his modus operandi there. And so uh, the scary thing here is that Cloud, I guess, is sort of on track to do the same thing, right? He, he, manipulates whoever you gave the black materia to he gets them to return it to him um he's very apologetic but then he flies up and hands it over sure enough to um the physical sephiroth that's encased there uh in that sort of root structure um very luciferian you know very in the frozen crystal sort of form there um the the thing I think about with that too is that what Cloud hears, um, he's trying to say that as long as Tifa um, believes in him and supports him, then everything's okay and he can sort of stand against any 
amount of illusion. But then Tifa says that it's not that way, right? That she she has been uh, concealing some of the truth from him. And that is, again, part of the, the breakdown here. And so I think for him, um, having, as we talked about, seen uh, Eris taken away, now having Tifa separate herself and, and sort of uh, hold up the truth as being more important than her um, sort of false pretenses with him, um, that sort of takes the, the ground out from underneath his feet here. So he's going to need to regroup in a pretty profound way. Um, we didn't see that with Sephiroth. Like he never had um, people and relationships that, that seem to matter to him. Uh, instead, he simply has this connection to Genova. And it's, it seems like that's been kind of smoothed over. Um, again, the specifics of that, a little unclear. But anyhow, with Cloud, it's a lot more complicated because he's got this whole party of people who he's now manipulating betraying and being betrayed by um, wherever he's gone. You know, presumably he's done what he wanted to do back after Eris was killed, was that he wanted to kind of give up, right? And so he's he's got to sort of figure things out at this point um, on his own. Either that or, you know, another possibility is that he's just been buried in that uh, landslide that we saw at the end there. So, you know, theoretically... He could also just be taken off the board at this point. Um, and it's a real low point in the game, right? You're like, you're imprisoned. You've lost your main character. Uh, Meteor is up there in the sky on its way down. You're about to be executed. Uh, can't get much worse, right? Right, right. I know. It, it's interesting to what extent you were mentioning that the faith in the referencing of Tifa is what sort of was keeping him together. And there's something about that that I wanted to mention, but I'm not sure that I can uh, recall it to my mind. I find it's inter it interesting also that the, uh, the promised land, quote unquote, is a giant material structure, which is a like a root structure, like you say, but is also um, uh, on the ceiling. So there's an inversion going on there. And so, uh, what, oh yes, one question I did want to ask you is, does it appear to you, this is just sort of a technical question, and I'm, I'm sure there are pictures on the internet that can settle this. In the sort of green crystalline structure that we find Sephiroth in, where we see him bare-chested and with his eyes closed, is he still human in form from underneath the midriff? It looks kind of like he's not anymore, and that he's already sort of lost his human form. Yeah, there's... There's a kind of um, obscurity there. You can't really see what's going on. And I don't know whether that's just for um, puny uh, American audiences who can't handle nudity in their uh, teen-rated video games or whether that's you know something intentional or something to do with Sephiroth's actual physical form. Um, I mean, Genova all along has been sort of amorphous, like a, a kind of a blob. Of, um, of organic matter. Uh, I don't know whether Sephiroth is kind of dissolving into that or, or what. Um, it does seem like if he is, then that would sort of mirror, you know, your 
mental breakdown or the, the partial one that he had and the one that Cloud seems to finally be kind of sliding into, um, you know, in a physical form, which would, I guess, make sense. Um, but also, you know, that's, that's the turning point. That's the point of inversion in the, uh, in the Inferno as well, right? Where you come to Satan's midriff, that's when you're crossing this, the center of the world. See, that's um, perfect, starting to end again. Yeah. That's perfect, Wes, because that makes me think that the moment that you realize that you've been a slave to your passions or a slave to another's will, that you have not moved yourself of your own volition towards your own goal, that's the moment of conversion. That's the moment of liberation from slavery, from uh, being subject to the Olympian gods or the primary motivational forces and being able to appropriately order them in a humble way in order to be a free sort of human, right? It, it's as if what Cloud is going to have to do is he has thought he was, he thought he was free, but then he was obviously a slave. Now he's going to have to reconceptualize himself as, um, as somebody who has acted unfreely. And in so doing so, he will achieve freedom of, of the will by means of, um, by means of, uh, I got to be able to finish this. <laughs> um, by means of seeing the prior ways in which he was constrained, uh, just as Sephiroth had to do that, right? Just as Sephiroth realized he was a puppet and that his identity was given to him and that he was just motivated by something outside his control and that sort of broke him. And then he had to learn in what ways he had been subject in order then to subject others. There we go, that's the piece I was missing. In learning how he was subjected, he can then subject others and that's freedom or, or raise them up. And that seems to be sort of the freedom of the will that you achieve and the two paths you can go sort of the Luciferian subjecting of somebody beneath you or sort of the more uh, like, like Christian or Christ-like or like Buddha-like raising somebody's consciousness up, showing them how they could, they are subject to, um, uh, forces outside their control which constrain their will so that they can manifest their will more freely in the world in a less determined way it's yeah it's a tricky kind of problem there of of having something outside yourself which is greater than you and like what do you do what is the reaction or the the proper response there it does seem like you can kind of go two main courses with that two main directions either you know refusing to acknowledge that thing wanting to usurp it wanting to be that thing to other people right that's sort of the sephiroth genova avenue uh or which we haven't seen yet but uh, yeah presumably there is an alternative to that maybe eris was sort of embodying it where you you sort of attune yourself to that greater thing, namely the the life force, this this the planet itself. In her case, her her ancient um, ancestors and the uh, the works of theirs, which are kind of lost there in the in the archaeological dig, right? But she like sort of communes with them and uh, is able to to kind of revive that lost learning. Um, it well, remains to be seen which which course cloud is going to take if he's still out there when i have sort of big question for you then because this is sort of i think one of like the questions that is like the archetypal question 
that makes Final Fantasies big. And I think this ties to your idea of the games themselves being clones and us as humans sort of being clones of each other that all strive towards similar ideals, right? We are isomorphic, obviously. And that's that seems to be the idea uh, in any case. But um, the, uh, I think the idea here is posed that it's almost like what a human realizes or what humans in civilization realize through what Sephiroth realizes is that they can be governed by primary motivational forces, biological forces that push them in certain directions throughout their lives. And they're drawn by certain images like the image of the hero that draw them towards a certain predetermined biological conclusion. But that we've also like woken up to this and it's caused a great resentment in us like, like Sephiroth. And it's like, why should we do this sort of thing? But the, the idea is not that necessarily we are being manipulated by these primary like biological or natural forces, but that that's just how things are and that that's what we have to accept that Sephiroth does not accept. I see, I see this very similarly borne out in the idea of Kuja, uh, the antagonist in Final Fantasy IX, who, who thinks he's the perfect being, but when he realizes that he's mortal, goes insane and wants to destroy everything because, because of the fact that he will die like everyone else in a very Akalayan way. No, well, there's my great thesis from when I thought this would be my dissertation. Perhaps it is. There it is. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I vaguely remember Final Fantasy IX. Um, I, I'm sure that you can sort of trace the similar themes uh, through a bunch of the, the games. And to think about the way in which um, each of the games invites those comparisons and sort of plays with them, like from little things like the, the Marlboro enemy with bad breath, you know, similar equipments, similar uh, job classes, whatever it might be, right? All the way up to these kind of like major um, central themes in the games. Uh, it's, it's interesting how with these iterations, certain things improve, right? Like, you know, very measurable things like graphics or uh, maybe gameplay mechanics or, or things like that. Whereas the story, the central, the central thematic aspect of it um, in some ways can only sort of be varied. It, it can't really be improved upon because as you say, it's, it strikes so deeply uh, at like core aspects of being human that the, it's, it's only a matter of sort of telling it a little better or a little worse. You can't really fundamentally change that story. That, that seems right. And the, the way that these games sort of take it upon themselves to have you play that out and really like immerse you in that process, make it come up to consciousness only if you really sit back and sort of think about it. Because as you're playing, right. you're not necessarily going to be doing that much thinking about the the thematic stuff, you're going to be sort of sucked into it. And, and that's a very interesting experience as well, because, because experiential learning is, is real, but it's maybe less articulate than um, more sort of like literary or reflective kinds of, of thinking, like, like we're trying to do here to kind of draw out some of what's latent there. Um, it's, again, it's, it makes me think too of the, uh, the way that the planet has its own defenses, you know, it's like, there's certain things about trying to bring out some of this stuff from the silence, from the, from the experiential, that there's almost like weapons arrayed against you. You know, like it becomes very difficult to, to say, 
clearly or if you do try to say it clearly to have it actually hit with the kind of impact that it really has in the moment. Um, that's kind of what I feel like those, uh, those weapons are like, you know, like the, the planet's natural defenses <laughs> against the ego's attempts to, um, to cast it into a fixed statement of some kind. Uh, well, do you see a connection between these weapons that get this, this gnarly and incredible and awe-inspiring uh, cutscene and the disintegration of the ego of the, the protagonist of your party, Cloud? Um, and what is it that you, why is it that weapon kept showing its eye when we were here with Sephiroth? And why is it the Sephiroth is here with this weapon? And what are these weapons exactly? And um, is there again going to be a difference in uh, approach between how uh, uh, Shinra is going to try and deal with them and how you're going to try and deal with them? And, and what does that say too? Right. Yeah. No, it's, the, the blinking of the one big eye there is very, very interesting because you can sort of see, right, like in the wall, there's kind of a face almost, uh, and then the eye blinks from a, a different part of the wall like I wasn't yes. expecting it to. I, I really like that. I mean, it made me think of the uh, the demon wall that, that fights you back in the, the temple of the ancients, you know, that sort of gets compressed into the black materia. So it's it's almost like you're invited to sort of see the the planet itself as a kind of, um, you know, organism, um, by extension, the game itself sort of winking at you, right? Like, it's it's got its own agenda, um, uh, and you're you're in, engaged in sort of your your story, um, but there's a bigger story there, which is um, sort of watching you with amusement the whole time, you know. And and there's so much bigger and faster and more powerful than you at this point um, that you can only, yeah, sort of be in awe of them um but you know that's how sephiroth seemed at first too right so so there's some there's something kind of interesting about the way that this this breakdown this low point in the game right this this turning point maybe uh is it only makes sense in the scope of a larger game from which you're gonna like within this game you're gonna actually kind of come back up from this low point right so i, I think that there's for me, at least, there's a bit of um, uh, the game sort of like leading you on further with this. Like, here's a further challenge. Here's something. A lot is finally revealed, but on the other hand, a lot remains uh, mysterious. And like, there's still more uh, sleuthing to do at this point to figure it out. And well, it's very interesting too in what in the ways that it parallels Harry Potter and that sort of something we start to notice about Harry in these, especially what we call darker volumes, three, four, five, six, is precisely him having to learn uh, uh, about the darkness within himself and what he really is and have to confront those elements within himself that are also elements within dark wizards in the same way that, and, and I see that as parallel with now how Cloud is going to have to really confront um, these these is going to have to discover who he really is because his former identity was too small for the, the fullness of his true being. And even though there was some major self-deception there in a way that maybe was not there with Harry Potter, maybe just childish ignorance, um, the outcome is going to be the same. There's going to be, have to be an expansion of consciousness that requires a fall from grace or a state of ignorance, an Edenic ignorance 
And so now we see the fall with cloud interestingly uh, enough after we are taken on the high wind for the first time, but not under our own control. So we are blown about against our own wills and sort of the Virgilian first book of the Aeneid, uh, the, the winds of fate are just pushing us away. Um, now we see that uh, finally cloud and being at this nadir, this low point, like you're saying, is going to be ready to ascend the mountain of purgatory, is going to rebuild himself. And then so like getting his foundation stronger is potentially going to come back stronger than he was, but it's going to be a long, hard journey. And it's interesting to what extent the game makes us sacrifice more time here. It's getting us prepared for a big sacrifice, it sounds like, and to teach us a lesson about what sacrifice is, which is to, to, to play the long game, uh, as it were, because we're going to have to now spend some time putting Cloud back together in order to have our best character who we've invested the most in and probably, like you said, put the most magic and power sources into so we have invested a lot in him so that we can get him back stronger than ever. Yeah, he's, I mean, to lose Eris is, is surprising and shocking in a way, um, but to lose Cloud would, would really, you know, completely flip around this story. Um, you, you get a little s sort of glimpse of what that would be like, where, you, you know, you control Barrett and Tifa here um, for a little bit. And I found it kind of interesting that the first question that Barrett asks is, aren't you going to ask about him, right? Like when Tifa finally wakes up, Barrett's expecting her to ask about where Cloud is. Um, it's, it's cool because you're sort of in this, um, you're, you're felt, you, you're made to feel something of what the, the characters are feeling with this loss. Um, you know, they're imprisoned, they're about to be executed. But you, you've probably identified strongly with Cloud and he's like removed from the party at this point. It's almost like you've lost everything, you know, and you're sort of just starting over completely here. Um, it's also, you know, the entire frame of the story is shifted now that um, Meteor is up in the sky, right? Like the world uh, has sort of fundamentally changed. Um, I do want to ask you about that. The presentation of Meteor where... I mean, it's like a perfect advertising pitch, right? Barrett just opens these curtains, and again, in an inarticulate but embodied way, and then bang, look at it in the sky. And did we miss it being summoned, or is the, are we to understand that when Cloud handed the black materia to Sephiroth, and then uh, his sort of crystalline structure fell, and so did that materia structure, that that was the summoning? Because... Or, or, or are we supposed to understand that it was summoned while we were in the, uh, out of commission or something like that? Yeah, I mean, I think it must have been that moment because that's when all of the weapon uh, woke up as well, you know? So I think that, that those two things kind of go hand in hand. Uh, and so that seems to be the moment where it's funny because we, we do seem to have been seen ever since we had our initial drama with Shinra in Midgar, we've seen uh, an extending of scope of consciousness and of heroic endeavor. And then after that, it was, let's get Sephiroth. But now this feels like the real turning point of the game where it's like, dang, everything is now of cosmic proportions. Like literally a cosmic force is coming down as a force of evil, malevolent judgment on Earth. And Earth is 
has has its own defense mechanisms that it has employed to fight against these and you are in some way going to be at the middle of all of this or well as you mentioned not which is the saddest thing it's like you're out of commission it's like you're not harry potter right now it's like you're so on the sidelines and actually you're going to die before any of this even happens so it doesn't even matter so you don't even have to experience the hopelessness or or the path of the hero because you're going to be out completely during the most interesting time in the world right you're you're the scapegoat being offered to um calm the people right because like rufus says you know or maybe it's heidegger or whoever right the people just need somebody punished and they'll feel better it'll calm them down uh that's rough that's um it's a different sort of game i suppose uh if that were the case but fortunately uh there is there is a lot more that we have uh ahead of us here um you know not only is cloud missing but like all the other members of your party are missing too right so we might be asking sort of like where have they gone off to um what have they uh been up to in this this week-long period i guess that the teeth has kind of been unconscious uh it seems like barrett wasn't knocked out that long um and maybe maybe we're supposed to understand that that was because of that um that rush of wind that um, struck her from the weapon flying past, right, in the cutscene. Um, then Barrett runs over to like keep her from getting knocked off the, the deck of the airship or whatever. That's very um, strong. And what you make me think is that we have to mimic the actions that Cloud and any person after a traumatic experience does in order to remember a dismembered psyche, right? You're going to actually have to go, You first you have to dis, uh, you have to get the chains off of yourself. You have to free yourself, and then you have to go get the chains off of every uh, of someone else. And now we're going ahead of my knowledge in the game because I have to play ahead. But then you're going to have to go get all your teammates back, right? And then you're going to have to get one of your teammates back together, which is another version of getting him to remember or uh, uh, reintegrate with the group because it has been disintegrated. And so it's interesting to what extent you as the player now have to uh, mimic in your action in the game, remembering what the characters in the game are actually doing them, themselves. The, uh, the process of liberating their will is, is of putting themselves back together in a more sort of sophisticated and uh, uh, durable and tough and strong way. But it, it, it doesn't just happen by itself, right? You have to consciously do it. You have to make the right steps, and it takes a lot of work, and that's that's the trouble. <laughs> yeah, right. I mean, again, I think you see Shinra's approach to this is much more cynical. Um, you know, let's just execute these uh, these rebels, right? And um, that will calm everybody down. Like we can't really do anything about it anyway. So oh, let's well. not solve the real problem. <laughs> right, right, and uh, you know. Uh, that's that is, I suppose, a an approach, but obviously not the uh, not the preferred one here. Right. Well, I mean, I think a lot a lot has happened fast here, and we have a lot to digest. And I think we've really gotten at the uh, the heart of the matter in some ways. We're starting to touch at it, and it's funny to what extent I could feel myself hitting my my former limits of thinking about this this topic because I do think. 
uh, it's interesting. You 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 criticized several fanboys some time back because of sort of the weakness seeming of his sort of personality to you know sort of get hit by one piece of information that sort of dissolved his identity and thus turned his character totally sour. But I think it's here where you see what made people really love him. The idea that he has such a powerful, powerful will that he refused, even though it is out of malevolence, which I think is sort of a discounting uh, and cruelty, which I do think is a discounting qualification now or, 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 or a piece of data, but that he manages to maintain his will even though he has died and then to subject the wills of others to his will and even to use this, this evil force, Genova, to draw power to himself, to, to throw the ultimate, uh, uh, I guess, uh, temper tantrum by, and summon Meteor. And I, I do see a lowness of intent there, but I, I see, uh, I think the idea is that people loved the I, a the the idea that a human can change from a human into a god, which is his ex, his explicit purpose, and b just the idea that somebody could be so talented and incredible, um, uh, even though for terrible reasons and with terrible darkness behind those reasons. Very Lucifer,ian really very Acalan. Yeah, I was about to say it's it's like you know, a certain reading of Milton's Paradise Lost in which Satan is the hero of the epic, right? Because we sort of, our sympathies are with him in many respects. Um, we are sort of on his side and follow him throughout a lot of the action of that, that poem um, to the point where you can make a pretty plausible reading of the poem as a whole and say that um, Milton himself or the poet himself is setting uh, the, the Satan character up as a kind of modern uh, hero, right? And, and in many ways, that, that works. But again, like, it would have to leave out certain other aspects of the, the context um, and specifically, right, things that we see debated in the course of the, uh, the West's encounter with the Bible and the whole like Christian religion and what it does with that story, uh, which, you know, addresses this, the same exact issue, right? Like what is the human's uh, sort of role with respect to his intellect, his will, his friendships, um, his relationship to the divine, right? Like all of these kind of super, uh, especially important questions to start asking, um, once you once you reach a certain stage of, of reflectiveness, right? They they come to a head in in characters like Sephiroth. Um, they dramatize them in a really interesting way, uh, and the way that that's in turn kind of presented in this game, and you know the way that you sort of play out a, an interpretation of the intentions of Sephiroth, like for most of the game, it is really really interesting. I I would you know again I think you put your finger on it right like. When you, when you take the absolute value of the will, it's very strong, sure, but you can't leave out the sign, right? The negative sign on there is important. Yeah, and I think, I think you're also pointing at the power of this game. You've continually been pointing at that and multiple times this conversation particularly as well, the sort of archetypal foundations of it, but it makes it seem as if Sephiroth and being sort of a Miltonic and Accolade figure 
we're seeing, and also a figure that's both Eastern and Western in his own respects. You know, he, he wields like a giant Masamune, like a, you know, like a Daikatana and, or, or, you know, a Japanese blade, not, 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 you know, a traditional, like Amer you know, not American, but like Western straight sword and that he's like a super condensation of like the archetype of evil or Cain or resentment of being super talented and amazing, but also so flawed in, in the way that does not even seem like a flaw, right? Because he's flawless in skill. The flaw goes much deeper than how he looks. And that, that leads into the Achilles, who is the most beautiful of the Achaeans, and the Lucifer, who is the most beautiful of the angels ideal as well, which is what also makes it so poignantly difficult. It makes you want to love him, right? Because of the positive halo effect. And also makes it so uh, so heinous, the, the direction that he goes, because it's like Sephiroth as an embodiment of a human embodies the ideal, what it is to be an ideal human much better than you do, especially if you're a kid while you're playing this. And to see him go wrong, it's like, how could you ever go right if this person who is so perfect goes wrong and that seems to be precisely what Cloud is going to have to go through and what you are going to have to go through as a player if you're going to actually grow based on this game because that's the question you're supposed to ask. Yeah, it's a really, I mean, it's a really tough question because it's very sort of dialectical and like you, you sort of feel like you've got a handle on it and then it'll sort of flip on you really fast. Um, like as you started talking, I was like, man, like I said some stuff um, but that only betrays my own bias, like being looking at this game from from the Western standpoint, right? Like, there's a whole other aspect to this of of divine um, sort of uh, religious or or traditional or whatever you want to call it, like wisdom, which I have, you know, I haven't got the language to even approach, and so I I don't know, you know, how how strongly um, some of those those Sephiroth fans out there might identify with him based on things that I don't even know about, right? Like whether they be from those people's own experience or from their, their cultural background being um, more attuned to some of the, the, the stuff going on um, from the Japanese culture than I am. Like there's plenty of good reasons, I suppose, to, um, to admire and to, you know, dig in more deeply to this Sephiroth character and what he might represent. Um, so I don't, yeah, I don't want to dismiss any of that. It's just like, to me, the, it, it becomes too, uh, too one-sided, I suppose. Um, if you, if you're sort of like looking for models or, or role models or whatever it might be, right. Or looking for things to, um, aspire towards. It strikes me that if you pick Sephiroth out from this game, then you've like, I think missed the point. But um, but maybe not. Like, I guess we got to keep playing and find out. Well, no, I mean, I think uh, uh, I wasn't exactly sure which direction you were to go until you went there in the end. And I, I think that's that is the ult ultimately the pragmatic angle. I think is the right one to take. Instead of just being inspired by his skill, look at the results. You know, he's sort of like dead in a crystalline structure, trying to cause misery for all people. It's like, is that really a great outcome? And you know. I think there seems to be some identity then beside between, you know, the outfit he wears, sort of the Nazi leather trench coat 
and the sort of desire to create misery for all, which, uh, which you know, as we know, Peterson claims was, uh, it's his hypothesis that that's what Hitler wanted rather than victory for the German people to cause maximum misery for people. And that that's why he started a war on two fronts, even though he was not historically ignorant of what happened when uh, one attempted to do that, particularly when the French did under Napoleon. Um, and so I, I do think that that's a, and that's so interesting because it's like, who, who do we follow right now, Wes? Because our, our normal protagonist is, he's out of commission and Sephiroth is trying to destroy the world. And so, well, where, what are we supposed to do? Right. I mean, uh, that, that's where I think the, the game itself has, um, has sort of woken up, right? Like the weapons are out there now. Uh, there, there's this new sort of uh, player on the board at this point. Um, you're, you're following um, like a different perspective of the story than you've gotten before. And like you said, step one is to, to liberate yourself. Uh, so whatever that might mean, um, that's what we got to do before we can do anything else. So. I honestly don't remember what happens after that part of the game. Like that's all of this has been a lot of stuff that I just like didn't, I don't think pay that much attention to when I first played this. So it's been pretty interesting. Looking forward to figuring out what happens next. Yeah, it's gotten very deep and I can see it's just incredible what sorts of themes appeal to us. Like when we're like 13 or 14 years old, ourselves going through transformations and trying to discover our own identities and often within very interesting family situations, um, which can make it harder or easier. And, uh, and so it can be very hard. And, uh, you know, again, we talk about not only those transitions in life, but those transitions between ways of seeing oneself as a culture with this odd video game medium, which is uh, an agglomeration of East and West. And these figures like Sephiroth, who has Nazi dress, but uh, but a katana, a Japanese weapon, and is a male, but has has female length hair, and uh, you know so is androgynous. And so, to to what extent these figures are are sort of even consciously made to be perfectly archetypal to have maximal uh, you know sort of data in them to be maximally attractive to us is something that would be interesting to talk about too. Maybe with Matt Roos or one of his colleagues at some point. Again, just a uh, see, see in the actual measurables to what extent the archetypes are present, which makes these characters very, very difficult for us not to become addicted to perceiving and following. Yeah. Yeah. That, I mean, and in turn, like spawning really a, a, a ton of, of imitators or, well, people who admire in various ways, uh, it sort of shapes a lot of subsequent uh, video game and, and pop culture. It's like Rome leaving Roman Catholicism as its ghost, right? Like this thing is the <laughs> yeah. present, it's the moment of the experience, then bang, there's like a long-term ghost that perforates afterwards or spirit, right? Totally, yeah. And I, I agree. Uh, it remains a, a goal to have some more people on to talk to. Um, I've sent a few invitations out to some different um, fantasy uh, and anime uh, scholars, you know, academics. Um, so we'll see who 
guest back and uh, keep kind of reaching out to people. Again, if listeners out there have some expertise in this stuff or, or know good avenues for research that they want to send our way, they should by all means do so. Um, find us on Facebook or just through YouTube or even, you know, just in the comments there, whatever it is. Uh, send us questions, send us ideas. Yeah, we will immediately, like hosts of Genova, adapt uh, uh, adapt to your requests and your questions and uh, begin to identify ourselves based on that content and information. So uh, <laughs> very, very, you can still imprint on us very strong. Um, yeah, no, yeah. and I think that'll be very interesting to what, and to what extent, you know, as we continue to take shape, we are, you know, uh, sort of, gentlemen scholars who interview experts at this sort of thing and ask big questions and give an arena, not just an arena, but sort of a, uh, uh, a living room in which to have these conversations, um, fireside chats for this age, uh, that'll be interesting to see. Um, but it, it will be good to have other people to talk to us about this because building community based on thinking about um, uh, that which has captured our imaginations and shaped our hearts seems to be important. Yeah, because if you don't think about it, then yeah, then you find yourself in a in a bad situation later on, as we as we see, as we see. So, yeah, it has real consequences not to think it through. That's yeah, important. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Well, on that note, <laughs> until Harry Potter tomorrow. All right. Sounds good. Thanks again. Thank you.